Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. All right. Hey, good to see everybody today. Great to have you here at Faith this morning, and uh, welcome. I understand Laurel crushed it last Sunday morning. Where's he at? Had an awesome time uh, with Pastor Laurel. Uh, I had the chance to go. We have five campuses uh, that we worship at all around the low country, and I had the privilege last Sunday morning of preaching on our north campus. Hadn't been there in a while and just had the chance to go over and minister the word and greet our family, our brothers and sisters right over there at north, and told them you all said hey. So uh, whether you did or not, anyway, I did that. So uh, I spoke up for you. We had a great time, great service over there as well. Uh, we're in the stories, we're in the Luke series. We're talking about the, the gospel of Luke, the Dr. Luke gives us a, this incredible account of Jesus Christ. And we're in the parables section. And there are many parables that are peculiar only to Luke's gospel. We're looking at some of those, some that you may find some references to in other parables as well. So take your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14. Jesus Christ is the ultimate storyteller. If anybody could tell a story, it was Jesus. And he could weave these incredible stories and he would kind of draw his audience in and he would have them on the edge of their seat and then he hit them, bam, with that punchline and turn everything around and flip the tables on them. And he was just a master at doing that. And, uh, and these stories that he told then still have power today to change lives. Uh, we already began with Luke chapter 11. We saw the parable on prayer, and he taught about the persistent person who neighbor who asked all night long and knocked on the door, and then he said, ask, seek, and knock. Come boldly before God. You can come boldly before his throne of grace anytime, morning, noon, or night, and he's a good God, and because he's a good father, he won't turn you away. Incredible, incredible. And that whole Lord's Prayer is right there in Luke chapter 11. And then in Luke chapter 12, last week you learned how we got to be ready that the master could come in an hour when you're not, think not. And so what's our responsibility? We're always watching and we're always serving. Always watching, always serving. And when we're ready and watching, he turns the tables again and he says the master comes back and he will serve you. He will wait on you. And he did that by laying his life down on Calvary. An incredible, incredible story right there. In Luke chapter 14, and let me give you the background. We're going to begin in just a moment with verse number 7. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus goes to have lunch at a prominent Pharisee's house. And they're there and the who's who of Jerusalem are gathered. And they're all sitting around this table, and they're all jockeying for their positions to see who can get closest to the host of the table. And, and you get this whole scene right here. Many of the parables Jesus told, and many of the miracles he did, and many of the settings we see in the Word of God were found around the dinner setting, the table setting. They, they, that becomes the backdrop for the Lord's teaching, for his miracles. We re- talked about the feeding of the 5,000, always feeding, always eating. It was so part of their culture and their life, and this became the whole backdrop for so many of his stories. Now, I will tell you, I would have fit in well there because I love to eat. 
Anybody here love to eat like I do? I'm, I'm, I'm all about eating. I, I, uh, I, I, I love to eat. Spring's coming up and, and summer and it's cookout season. And so I'll get the grill out and we'll fire that grill out. And it's always kind of a, with all the guests who are there, it's always at my house, kind of a guessing game. How many burgers will he ruin today? How many will he burn today? And of course, I always sacrifice my first 10%, and those are burn up, and they, 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 they are really, really rough shaped. They could be hockey pucks. I had a group over last time, and Laurel and I, Laurel has helped me, so he takes some of the blame. And uh, we let that fire get away. Man, we had some burgers that came out. They were so hard and so tough. And uh, I felt really sorry for those who were gathered there. And so that's kind of the burger time. Uh, I, I lead a life group, I lead my group on Wednesday night. And we have, a, we have just a great times of praise and worship, and then we study the Word a little bit, and, and we pray a little bit together. We pray and, and, and do that and share with each other, share life together. But my, one of my favorite parts of the group meeting is the food time. And I got some amazing ladies who bring some amazing food, and we put it together, and we always eat. How many were able to come to the Wild Game Banquet last night? Let me see your hand. Wasn't that phenomenal? I mean, all you could eat turkey and pulled pork and quail and we had all kinds of amazing food and I was right there in the thick of it just just going as fast as I can you know it's just it's like it's it's like it's my last meal I treat every dinner like it's the last meal last meal and we treat it that way and that's why I struggle so much but food and so you have this dinner setting and there's something about dinners there's something about the lunchtime or the dinner time that you can take somebody out and all your defenses come down, all your guard comes down, and you can just take that time while you're eating around the table to be real and to be honest about who you are and, and share together and do life together and laugh together and cry together. And it's awesome, those kind of fellowship times that we have with family and friends and others. It's very, very special. So this is the backdrop here. Jesus has gone to dinner. He's been invited to come out to eat. He's at a prominent Pharisee's house. And, and it says in verse number one, all eyes were upon Jesus. He's the one they're looking at. He's the one they've been talking about. They wanted to make sure he made it to this special meal with this special Pharisees and all of his cronies. And here Jesus Christ is. And the Bible says all eyes are upon him. And then there's a diseased man who has dropsy. Now, this is in verse number two. And so you have a guy who may have come in and barged the party. We don't know how he got in there. He may have already been in there. I doubt he would have been invited because he's not included in the who's who. He has a disease. And he's there, and he has this terrible disease of dropsy. Now, now we don't use that terminology a lot, but today's language, it might be edema. And so what happens is there's this abnormal accumulation of fluid in the muscles and the joints. And so if you had a dropsy, your legs would swell up, your ankles would swell up, your feet would swell up. It could even attack your organs of your body. It was a very, very painful disease. Now, when I use the term dropsy, it's not for when your stomach drops over your belt. I've had dropsy and still have it at times, and so that's not what he's talking about, dropsy there. It, it is a disease that attacks your fluid and causes you to swell up. And what happens is all these religious leaders, this is Sabbath day, 
And it's nothing new. Jesus had already healed on the Sabbath, but they're watching. Will he do it again? Will he break the law one more time? Will he trample our traditions one more time by healing this guy? And they are all watching him. They're all focused on Jesus Christ. And Jesus does something. He beats them to the punch. And rather than heal him and try to explain what took place or what happened, he turns the tables on the Pharisees. And here's what he says. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now what he's done is he's shifted the focus off himself and back on the Pharisees. And he's going to say, are you going to be so concerned about your Sabbath laws and regulations? And by the way, Moses said, you could, if, a, if your ox fell on the ditch on the Sabbath, you could help him out of the ditch and be humane on the Sabbath day. And his whole point is, how much more can I not heal this man? And they're all waiting for him to violate their laws, their rules and regulations. And so he says, is it lawful? You tell me. And they just got quiet. They couldn't say a word. Because either way, they're stuck. If they say it's good to heal on the Sabbath, they just broke in their minds their Sabbath laws or traditions. And, and so, so he, he says, he does something. He takes him in his arms, the Bible says, and he heals the man. He hugs the guy, he heals him, and the Bible says he sends him on his way, and all the guests are just staring and looking at him, and the Pharisees are speechless. I think the one thing that jumps out about Jesus Christ is his compassion. He is so full of compassion the, the hurting, the poor, the blind, the maimed, the, the, the infirm, the diseased, the sick, the disenfranchised, all those that no one else will love, those are the kind of people that you just see Jesus loving. And compassion always trumps religious rules and regulations. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is, Jesus is going to be compassionate. He's not going to be held hostage by human standards of religion and so they had been watching him, they had been testing him, and now Jesus does something, he's going to turn the tables on them, and he's going to start watching them. And I want you to observe what he sees. Let's stand together, Luke chapter 14. Let's pick up our story right there, verse number 7, and uh, we'll read about the first four verses of that. When he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Now, he's watching them. And he sees them all fighting for seats around the table. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes and he says to you, friend, move up to a better place, then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. Father, I pray that today, as your church, as your people, we would strive to take the lowest places, that we would be humble, that our first heart and first desire would be to serve those around us, to serve those in Somerville, to serve those in Goose Creek, to serve those in all the low country, God, to serve those who are coming in by the hundreds every week, God, to serve those in our schools, to serve those in our community, God. Help us to be your choice servants that you've positioned right here. Open up the word of our 
of God to our hearts in a new and living way. And we ask this in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Jesus is watching them, and, and he's watching how they're, they're fighting around the table, and they're kind of moving each other around, and they're hurrying to get to the better seats and the better spots, and they're trying to get as close to the host as they can. Now, now every culture had its own seating etiquette. There was a special way to seat, and so typically what happened is the host of the table sat somewhere midway across, around the table, and they would typically recline or, or lay back somewhat as they reclined around the tables and prepared themselves to eat. Uh, at his left hand, he would put his most prominent or important guest. And so if you were at the, the host left hand, that was in that culture the best seat. And then the next best seat was, of course, on his right hand. And so you would have his two best buddies on either side. Of him. Remember when James and John says, let one sit on your left and one sit on your right hand in your kingdom? They are asking for the best seats in the house. Okay. These are the very best seats, very close and very near to the host. And from there, they would kind of go on down sequentially on around the table as the guests spread out around that table in that culture in that day and age. And as the room is settling down, what happens is everybody's kind of looking around and saying, who's close to the host? Who's his best friends? Who's, who's, the, who's the most important people around here? And not only are they doing something, they are not only comparing themselves with themselves to see where they're at in the pecking order or where they're at in the seating order to say, you know what, I'm not as good as this guy, I'm better than this guy, you're not so good over here, but I'm really great over here. They're comparing this, but they're also comparing their ranking in the host eyes because who's most favored by him? who is most loved by him. And so both of those dynamics are going on at the same time. And, but God doesn't assign rank based on works. It's not how God works. It's not how his kingdom works. He doesn't follow the same standards for man in judging greatness. In fact, he totally flips the tables and says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to serve. And if you want to be elevated, pick the lowest places and let God elevate you and let God bring you up. It's not about who gets the best seat in the house. It is the opposite kingdom of God. Everything about God's kingdom is opposite with culture. It's the same today. Humility receives the praise. Sacrifice receives the glory. And pride will result in public disgrace. And he says, you know what will happen if, if you're here next to me and you've got the very best seat in the house and my guest of honor walks in late to the banquet, I'm going to ask you to move and go down to the lowest seat and you will be indignant and you will be humiliated and pride is the way to a fall. You will lose out. You will fall back. Bowing low, humility puts the humble on a fast track to the top in God's kingdom. And so he says, if you want to be honored by God and, and lifted up by God, humble yourself. Become a servant. That's what God's looking for in his kingdom. I'm looking for servants, the Lord says. The Bible says Jesus, our king, lowered himself. and He became a servant, and it was God who would then exalt him. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. You see this very table-setting parable kind of played out here in the life of Jesus Christ. And he just doesn't mix words when Paul writes the Philippians. 
Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so you see this image of, of God Fully God being allowed to be robed in flesh. This total act of laying aside his prerogatives as deity and becoming a man. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus comes to earth, humbles himself, and God says, hey, move up here. Move up to my table. Get closer to me. Wow. And gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an incredible passage and picture of what Jesus Christ does. Now let me ask you a question. When you enter a room, do you size up the room right away and kind of look around and see who's there and try to go and hobnob with the influencers and the people who have clout and the people of possession or uh, of possessions, the people of influence and money and, and fame? Do you look to make those important connections? Are we seeking in some ways and what we do with those around us places of honor, and if I get with the movers and the shakers, then I will have that place of honor and prestige, and we're passing our cards around, and we're getting their business cards, and we're just hobnobbing with all the right people. You see, the world's thinking is all about honoring yourself, glorifying yourself, padding your resume, so to speak, Climbing higher up the social ladder, whether it be in the company or wherever you're at. Push, push, push. If I can climb higher, if I can climb this ladder of success. Here's the problem with that. And God is not against promotion. Uh, the trouble is we're not promotable. And we're not promotable until we first learn how to serve. And the trouble with climbing that mythical ladder of success is to climb that ladder of success, you often have to step on somebody else to get there. And so our success is on the backs of the others around us, and we climb that pecking order. We try to get closer and closer to that highest seat of honor, but in the process, we step on everybody else along the way. And God says if you'll take the lowest seat and you'll just begin to serve those around you, don't worry, I'll take care of you. You'll be honored by me. And that's the most important honor you can ever have. The cockiness and attitude of comparison will backfire and we lose. In fact, it's evil to compare ourselves with ourselves. And so we look around and say, boy, I'm more holy than that guy. I'm more righteous than that guy. How can that person dare do that? How can that person stumble and fall? And we get in this whole judging kind of thing that's going on, and we're comparing ourselves with those all around us, and we think, you know what? I'm better than him. I get the better seat at the table. The problem is we lose. We lose. He says, there's going to come a time when, when somebody else comes in and says, you know what? Get up and go to the bottom of the table. 
And, and if we have this whole idea that I'm going to have to build myself up and I'm filled with pride and I'm filled with all about who I am and what I can do, if I am filled with that kind of pride mentality, ultimately we lose. You say, Pastor, what do we lose? I'll tell you, you lose your joy. Joy comes in serving. Joy comes in giving yourself away. Joy is all about other people. You'll lose your joy. You'll lose your contentment because you'll be so fixed on what I get here and now. You'll lose your love. You won't care about the compassionate or the hurting and broken. It's just about the who are like you and who act like you and who can help you advance your careers. You'll lose the fruit of the Spirit. And what happens is if we have that kind of mindset of prideful getting the best seat in the house, it takes my passion out of ministry. And if we're not careful, it can even happen in a church where we begin to think, this is my ministry. I'm the best singer here. I ought to be on the schedule every week. This is my children's ministry, my youth ministry, my that ministry, and nobody can do it like I can. We talk about in the secular world all this kind of pecking order. If we're not careful, that pecking order crops right up in his church. We strive for positions, and, and so our ministry becomes out of ego-driven instead of others-driven, and, and pride can slip in so quickly. And we get worried about the best seats, and we miss the hurts and pains of all those around us. Wow. Which leads into the second point. Compassion blesses and makes us sensitive. The exact opposite. Compassion, if pride backfires and leads to a fall, compassion will bless you and make you sensitive to the needs of those around you. Go back, if you would. Let's pick it up with verse 12 as we work our way through the rest of this passage. And Jesus said to his host, When you, invite, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Wow. Now, just like today, the, those, those first century religious leaders, they were, they were in, in some ways politicians. They were involved in the political landscape and scene in Jerusalem. They were the socialites. And so they would elevate their position by inviting the who's who. Who was on your guest list? Really important. I mean, and you had to have all the best and the brightest at your guest list. And not only that, but there was the hope that they would invite you to their party later down the road. And, and this whole social elite network is slowly being crafted and orchestrated, of which you are going to be right in the center of that. And so it's all about inviting the right people and not inviting the wrong people. By hosting, party, by hosting the parties and the reciprocating invitations, they built social alliances. Jesus suggests something to his host. Now, his host is hosting the party at which Jesus has been invited. But he says, I want you to take a different approach. Rather than find those who will advance your career, use your assets to benefit those who cannot help themselves. 
Of course, if the host agrees to do this, it would be tantamount to committing social suicide. Now, here again, you see this compassion of Jesus Christ. He says, these are the kinds of people that God has blessed you with means and assets and finances. The kind of people you should go after are not the people that are already also have means and finances and social standing. Go after those who can't help themselves. Go after those who everybody else rejects. Go after those who, if you brought them into your party, people would say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to that party. It's filled with all kinds of, of, of lame people laying around, and there are blind people being led around. And it's a problem, and it's a nuisance, and I am not going to that kind of party. We are to help those who cannot pay us back. So what are we doing to care for the orphans today? What are we doing about the widows in our congregation and all around us? Are we speaking out for those less fortunate? What would happen if we truly and genuinely lived out this kingdom lifestyle today? What would, what would, how would that impact, what would that look like in our society? The Pharisees believed in compassion, but only when it served them. And so if they did give, they made sure everybody was watching to see what a philanthropist I was and look how much money I'm giving. And they made sure all eyes were on them. So even in their giving, it was very self-serving. The call still goes out today. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the hurting, the broken, the addict, the hungry, the homeless. Now, something happens. When you do that, then that begins to soften you. And if pride makes you hard and cold and non-caring, humility and servanthood softens your heart because that's what we were created to do. That's that image of Christ in us. That's Jesus in me, and when I begin to do the Jesus kind of stuff, it softens my spirit. And I, and I get this incredible closeness to my master. It's the way I get closer to the, the seat, the host seat. The way I get closer to the host of the table is to serve and invite those no one else cares about. And then I get very close to my Lord and my Savior because my heart's lining up with his heart, and it's really awesome when it happens that way. Can we stop discriminating? Can we stop the jokes and the sarcasm and the judging that so often goes on and invest in people who are not like us? Jesus' compassion was amazing. He met people's needs and loving them. And you notice Jesus never took a Sabbath off from caring for people. I don't care if it's Sunday or not or the Sabbath day or not. I'm going to heal this guy because that's what I do. That's what we do as the body of Christ. And so we never take a day off. Jesus never checked the color of their skin. He never checked their social standing. He never checked the thickness of a man's wallet before he healed him or ministered to him. He never checked their circle of influence. He always was sensitive and compassionate to the hurts and needs around them. And God's word says, if you do that, my friends, you will be blessed. Blessed right now with a joy unspeakable and full of glory and blessed in his kingdom to come and the blessing comes from serving and it's exciting. I want to challenge you guys. Get involved in that kind of serving and compassion and giving. 
And that leads to the third point. It's simply this. Salvation beckons us and makes us select. And he's going to go now to a little different twist on it, but the same kind of message, and he picks it up with verse 15, and this is where I really want to zoom in on today. Okay, verse 15, here we go. And when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to test them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married and so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master, and the owner of the house came, became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now, these are the exact same ones he told his host to invite. Remember just a few verses earlier, verse 13? Host, you invite these kind of guys. So now he tells a ter- parable to say, let's go out and bring them in. Okay? Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done. There's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, go back to verse 15. Let me give you the backdrop. It's getting very uncomfortable around the table, right? Jesus has just nailed the host and, and, and threw all the, ga- all the guests off their game by healing somebody. And so somebody tries to break the tension in the room. You know how you, have you've been around the table and you're all eating, you're all having fun, and, and it's getting really intense, and someone just kind of makes a light joke or says something off the cuff. And so the guy says to kind of lighten up the atmosphere, you know what, Lord, well, it's going to be an awesome day when we all get to that banqueting table in the sky. And we all eat together, and there's going to be a great kingdom, and boy, that's going to be an awesome day. And just kind of throwing out some random statement there. And with that random statement, Jesus goes into this really incredible parable that we're going to look at this morning. And so he tells the parable what is known as the great banquet. Now, to understand banquets, you've got to understand the invitation process. What they would do is there would be two invitations, one would go out, how, how many of you have got like a save the date invitation? This is when the wedding's coming up, this is when it's going to occur, this is when the baby shower is going to take place, this is when we're going to celebrate and party, whatever. Here's the save the date. And please RSVP so we know how much food to prepare and get ready for. Just write it down, if the date's clear, let me know. So they sent out the first invitation, and everybody's looking at it, yeah, I can make that, sure, I can make that, yeah, I'll be there. And all the invitations start pouring back in about all these guests that are coming to this great, big, huge banquet feast. The second invitation would go out approximately the day of the banquet, and, or the day before, or right in that proximity to the dinner happening, and, and it would go out to everybody and say, okay, the food is now ready, now you can all come, everybody that RSVP'd, everybody that said, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be at that banquet, now it's time, the table is spread, come on out, everything's ready, 6 o'clock, let's have a big party tonight, got all kinds of food, and let's get ready, and so there was the second invitation that would go out. Now let me give you a little backdrop in history. The first invitation went out to the Jewish nation. It went out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? You with me? It went to the Jews. It went to all their descendants. 
And the invitation said basically this, hey, I'm going to build the kingdom around you guys, and you know what? I'm going to send a Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And so the pre, the first invitation in history went out to the Jewish nation. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Okay, you get the order there? God's chosen people, the Jewish nation. The invitation goes out, written in the law, written in the Ten Commandments. There's an invitation to God's kingdom, but it's going to foreshadow the coming king. Got that? The second invitation goes out. And now the excuses begin to pour in about why they could not come. Now, that, I don't know if they had text or Twitter or what happened, but somehow word got out, this is a lame party. And we're not going. Because you look at their excuses, their excuses are very, very lame for why they could not come to this big, big celebration. The first one says, I bought a field, i got to go check it out. Well, first of all, nobody buys a field without looking at it first. I'll buy your house. Don't, don't even see it. Just tell me how much. I'll write you a check. Not only that, but the dinners were always at nighttime. Who's going to go out and look at a field in the middle of the night? Not only that, but the field's not going anywhere. It's going to be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Fields don't run away. Lame excuse. It's just, you know what? I don't care about you. I'm not coming to your dinner. And then the, the second excuse, I bought five yoke of oxen, and i got to try them out. Now here again, who buys the yoke without first trying them out ahead of time? Uh, but but th- this whole lame excuse. Now the, the first excuse kind of lines up with some of our excuses today. It says, I've made an investment, I've got my money tied up in this land, and I'm more concerned about my money and my investment than being a part of your kingdom. How many today turn the invitation away to the kingdom of God or, or, or just don't respond to it because I've got my equities and I've got my stocks and I've got my boat and I've got my stuff and I've got my finances and I don't have time for Jesus. So materialism in America has been squeezing God out. How do we respond? Do we seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and let God take care of the stuff? Or do we worry about the stuff first? I can't come to your bank. The, the, the second one is about our work, about our job. I've got these oxen. They're, they're my livelihood. They're the key to plowing the field. I've got to try them out. And how many in their job will put their job before God and we work all the overtime and I don't have time for the Lord and my family and everybody else because I've got to get ahead in the job. And that becomes our little idol. And then the third one is I just got married. And I've got to take time off with my new bride. Now, in that culture, you could have brought your bride along. This was not a stag party. Anybody can come. And yes, while our families are important, the Bible says this. If you do not love God above everything else, in fact, the love of God, you've got to be willing to leave father, mother, brother, sister, because the kingdom of God is the most important challenge of our lives. It's our calling. It's who we are. It's about eternity. We've got to get that straight. Now with all this food and no one's showing up, the host is hot. He is angry. There is a rage that fills him. Now, 
The excuses picture the Jewish nation. The first invitation went out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on to Moses with the Messiah is coming, the banquet's coming, the dinner's coming. But when the, when the Messiah came, the Bible tells us in, in, in John, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. When the invitation day finally came and the great feast of God's grace was here, they rejected Jesus Christ. In fact, history records it was the Jewish leaders that had Jesus Christ crucified. Paul would preach to them in the book of Acts, it is you who have crucified the Lord of glory. Now I know theology, the, theologically it was my sins that hung him on the cross and we were all culpable, but, but in, in history as it occurred, Paul, uh, Peter preaches, it is you who have killed the Lord of glory. And so he lays the blame at the feet of these Pharisees and these Sadducees and religious leaders. They rejected the second invitation. They were making their excuses about why they could not participate. The Jewish leaders had rested in their heritage. They had their Jewish DNA, and so they thought they were automatically grandfathered into the kingdom of God. And because I'm a Jew, I am guaranteed a seat at his table in his kingdom. But they were wrong. The only way to get to God's banqueting table is to accept God's invitation of grace to say, God, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. Works won't do it. And we receive his invitation of God's grace. We invite Jesus to come into our heart and life. That is the only thing that will get you a seat at his table. His invitation was extended through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But by pursuing their own agenda, their place was given to others. And the Bible says, go out and now find the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and invite them to come to my dinner table. Luke 13, verse 29 and 30, it says, they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will recline at the table of God's grace. He's describing that who is all going to be brought in from all over. Everybody, every race, every kindred, every tribe will come to the table of God's great grace. And in God's kingdom, the first is last, and the last will be first. Romans 9. Turn to Romans 9 very quickly. Romans 9 and verse 30 to 33. Now, he's, he's really talking to the Jewish nation here, Paul and his theology. 9, 10, and 11 are about Israel's rejection of Christ, and God's eventually grafting them back into his vine. But he starts out in verse 30. What shall we say, that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is God by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Israel went after the law. They couldn't come to his banquet. The Gentiles went after grace. They make it to the banquet. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone that, it, as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our foundation. He is our rock. But he says the Jewish nation stumbled over that stumbling stone and they rejected Jesus Christ and they never came to his table of grace. He says, how do we get to his table? Not by works, but by grace. We don't earn our seat there. No one can ever make it there on their own merit. 
is by accepting God's invitation to the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the maimed. Listen, in this parable, we are the poor. We're the blind. We're, we're the lame. We're the disenfranchised. We're the outsiders. But then God sent that second invitation out. He says, go, bring them all in. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Go to the east, the north, the south, and the west. And you know what? Even after we all come in, he says something else. There's still room. Go into the highways and byways. Go into China. Go into Iraq. Go into Iran. Go around this world and take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's still room. Every nation, every continent needs to hear about the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go, 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 because there's still room at my table. Now the reality is today we've got to make a choice. We live in a very busy world. So what do I choose? Do I choose my own money, my own resources, my own job, my own family? Or do do I seek God's kingdom invitation above everything else? It's worth our lives. As Jesus would continue his journey to the cross, the disciples would see this ever-increasing tension between the kingdom of God and the culture of man and their their religiosity. He said, don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasure in heaven. How do we do that? I invite the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the hurting. And when they're there in God's kingdom, and I walk across that threshold, he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And there's going to be a whole host of people we invited to church. We told about the Lord Jesus Christ. We picked them up when they couldn't walk. And we said, we've got a wheelchair. We'll, we'll just wheel you in on a wheelchair. You don't have a home. Come stay at my house. You can't see. I'll lead you to church. We talked to him about Jesus. They come flocking in from all over. That's our eternal reward. And that's worth investing our lives into, my friends. And he says in verse 14, you will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. This battle between religious pride and this upside-down kingdom still goes on today. So I ask you some questions. What if, instead of jockeying for positions and sizing everybody else up in the room, we would just say, as a church... As a follower of Christ, I'm taking the lowest seat because I've got some feet to wash and people to love and people to give to and people to minister to. What if we did that really as a church? What if we allow compassion to be restored? We give and we serve to those who can never give back. They won't invite you back to their house. They don't have houses. They don't have a place to feed you and serve you. What if we invest in them? And the last call is, what if we accept God's invitation and say, Jesus, I need you. Be my Lord and Savior. Come into my heart and life. Bow your head and close your eyes if you would. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, mighty God. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.